and uh, to page 705. Now, when are we? Uh, what time is it? It's uh, five past seven. But that's not the only way of answering the question, what time is it? What kind of time is it? That was really the purpose behind those questions earlier on uh, in our service. Is it the kind of time that's community games, that's jolly summer, everyone's smiling, uh, or is it fundamentally Christian aid, dealing with hunger and grimness? Are we personally having a week, or just had a week, in which we have felt uh, everything is, th- is what we can be grateful for? It felt like we conquered everything, every challenge in front of us. Or is the situation desperate? There are different answers that we will have, one from another. But what about the church's answer? Because we are, after all, the church. We're the church locally, but there's also the big church too. And we share common responsibility for what time it is in the church. How should we pray? Where should we direct our effort and work? What sort of people should we be? Are we in the situation as a uh, body of God's people in which, as a, a doctor taught people to say, going into the 20th century every day and in every way, I am getting better and better? Or is the world going to hell in a handcart? Where, where are we? When are we? What sort of time is this that we live in? Let's bow our heads and pray for a moment. Lord, we do have our own personal stories of the kind of week that it's been. But as we move up the scale towards the common stories that we have together, in our country, in our church, in our world, we ask for discernment and wisdom to know what sort of time this is so that we may pray and live rightly in the light of Jesus Christ and in what he is up to in our world. So guide us, we pray, from your word and by the light of your spirit. Amen. Well, uh, chapter 22 of Isaiah and verse 1. An oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. It's clear from something that comes a little later that this is actually now no longer stories of uh, kingdoms far away. But in this kind of little travelogue almost, as Isaiah the prophet has looked around the countries uh, uh, near to him from his, his base in Jerusalem, uh, he's, he's now turning his attention not to those countries out there, but to his own country. This is a, this is a, uh, a country that prided itself on having at its centre Mount Zion. And so he deliberately takes that title and twists it and says, uh, you think you're a mountain, but you're not, you're a valley. 
Now, actually, valleys are not great places from which to see things. You go up a mountain if you want to see any distance. So a, a, a valley that has a vision going on inside it is already almost like a play on words. It's a nonsense. There is a valley experience going on that Isaiah's going to tell us about. And he, within that valley experience, not a mountaintop experience, within the valley, he has had a vision. And I just want to run through it, first of all, and then we'll kind of try and to draw some lessons from it. What troubles you now? That you have all gone up on the roofs, O town full of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry. Oh, revelry. Oh, that's good. There's partying going on. Oh, but no, there isn't. You're slain. We're not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They've been captured without using the bow. There's an exile going on. There's some kind of total disaster that's involved, we would guess, a siege, so that you're slain, were not killed by the sword, they were just were too hungry, and they died. Now, I, I could uh, take you through the little bits of evidence one after another, but I wonder if you might just for the moment believe me if I say that, well, not because I know, but because the people I read uh, know and have gone through all the evidence... What's going on here is that uh, Isaiah is looking forward uh, to a period a long time in the future. Right now, when he's talking, there is an Assyrian empire uh, from the, the northeast, way over the desert uh, to, the, from, to the northeast of Judah. And they are pressurizing uh, his region. However, it looks like there may be hope because uh, the, uh, within the Assyrian Empire there is a rising power, the power of Babylon. And not far away, in fact, about the time that he's writing, uh, the Babylonians had uh, put siege to parts of Philistia on the coast. But then they'd had to withdraw. So it looks as though, uh, to the people around in Isaiah's day, that we're feeling oppressed by Assyria, but it might be that Babylon's rising power means there's going to be a great fight between Babylon and Assyria, and we will come off the better because the pressure from Assyria will be lifted. And Isaiah's message throughout what we're about to look at is, no, it won't, it's going to get worse. He's clear that though it looks like a good time, it's a, it's a dreadful time. And he'll explain why. Uh, Isaiah says, let me weep. Verse 4. Therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. They're obviously saying to him, don't worry, it's going to be okay. You don't need uh, to weep. Uh, We have consolation. There's good news, Isaiah. The Babylonians are going to see us right. But he has been sitting in the council of God, and he knows that that's not the case. He's looking further forward than they are, and he knows it's going to go dreadfully, dreadfully pear-shaped. And then he delivers what the Lord has to say to them. Uh, Verse 5, The Lord, the Lord Almighty 
has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. A day of battering down walls, your city is going to be attacked. And of crying out to the mountains, the mountains are all around at Jerusalem. Elam, it's one of the names for uh, Babylon or part of Babylon, takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kiats, another part, uncovers the shield. Your choicest valleys, and uh, uh, Jerusalem works like this. This is a very kind of schematic. Uh, there's a mountain, and then valleys just outside the walls, and then higher mountains just ar- ar- around those. So in verses uh, 7, uh, Isaiah is looking to the day when the valleys themselves around the city are going to be full of chariots, horsemen posted at the city gates, and the defences of Judah are stripped away. The Babylonians are coming, and they're going to be worse than the Assyrians. And you looked in that day, Judah. You, I, I'm looking forward, and I know uh, from that forward position, I'm going to, we're all going to be able to look back and say, yes, you reacted the way you reacted to this terrible news was you prepared defences. You went to look for your weapons, which were in the palace. There was a, um, uh, a part of the palace, the king's palace, which was so full of fine wood that it was called the Palace of the Forest. You saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defence, which would probably mean that fire was going to be used. You stored up water in the lower pool. Was that to uh, douse any fires that would go, or was it just to keep the people going? Not quite sure. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem, and you tore down houses to strengthen the wall. Because all around the walls of Jerusalem, there were buildings up against the wall. So to strengthen them... Uh, to strengthen the walls, they actually took the buildings down to take the material to where the breaches in the wall had been made. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Well, presumably they did what it said, but that helps because we know that it's in the time now of uh, actually one of the good kings, Hezekiah. But you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. That's devastating. You had the water supply, and you went about and you built the reservoir, you thought to yourselves, gosh, we're good. We've got all the defences, we've got all the masonry, we can do what's needed here. And God just reminds us, hang on, you didn't make the water supply flow. You didn't take Jerusalem. I gave it to you. Remember these things. And in the in the, the, the ways you look forward to these times. Verse 12, what you should have been doing is calling on God in, in tremendous repentance, weeping and wailing, tearing out your hair, putting on sackcloth. But no, you said in the face of these threats, let's have a party. Let's, uh, let's eat. Let's drink. Tomorrow, well, who knows about tomorrow? We die. Everyone dies. No worries. You were busy building when you should have been believing. You were busy partying when you should have been repenting. And that's the point. This community down in the south of uh, the land of, of Palestine thinks it's much better off 
than the community in the north of Palestine, the land of Israel. That land had already been completely smashed by the Assyrians uh, for their political uh, attempts to manoeuvre and try to outsmart the Assyrians. And the Assyrians just swatted them. And you, Judah, you think you're better than that, but you are not. You are oppressed by Assyria, and you are putting your faith in a Babylonian deliverance, just like the northern kingdom put its faith in an Egyptian deliverance. Instead of which, you should be repenting for failing to live by the covenant of God revealed to you. Look at uh, verses uh, 8b through to 11 again. They were working hard on the defense of the city. And God rebukes them and says, yeah, but just remember who gave you the water in the first place. To which you might imagine that they would react by saying, well, hang on, Isaiah, what do you want us to do? Just want to sit, do you want us to sit in the temple praying having sacrifices while these armies come and march through our land? Do you want us to say, oh, it'll be all right, the Lord will deliver us? And Isaiah is not saying that. It's not that he is complaining about the fact they prepare. He's not complaining about the fact that they defend. It's that they prepare instead of trusting in God. They play the politics instead of relying on God. When the right response was to prepare and to trust in God. And that meant to live as they should have been living. Instead of in a country that was full of uh, corruption, we're about to find a signal instance of that, uh, and injustice. Put the heart of things right. Deal with the corruption. Get yourselves into a situation of justice. And then, yes, by all means, do the defending, do the preparing. And we're going now to have two stories uh, in chapter 22 about two prime ministers. Uh, Actually, they're described to us as palace administrators. But they have the key to the king's door. They get to decide who gets to see the king. And when you get to decide who gets to see the king, there is no one else more important in the land than you. And the first one of these is called Shebna. And his story begins at verse 15. Shebna has cut himself a grave. It was a custom to create fine graves on the upper part of the valley outside Jerusalem, to celebrate the status that you had in life. And God tells Isaiah to go and meet Shebna there. That's why Isaiah says, what are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? Perhaps Shebna has gone out to review the progress of the work. You feel secure here, says Isaiah. But actually, you're never going to get to use that grave. You're going to be bound up like a ball and thrown far away into a wide and spacious country. 
probably Assyria, because it was, and you are going to die there. You are a disgrace. You trust to your own security and your own wealth. Uh, With all the chariots that there are at your charge, you feel you are indestructible, but I am going to cast you down because you're completely involved in the corruption of your people. You're putting yourself first instead of them. Well, it's not hard, is it, to think of scandals now involving political figures pleased at their own performances while conspicuously failing to address the issues that matter. Let's thank God for the honest ones. But then by contrast, verse 20, here's Eliakim. He is the one who's going to end up with the the robe and the sash that have been taken away from Shebna. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem, verse 21. He will have the key to the king's door. He will have a vast power. He will, in a sense, get it. He will be the man that Shebna should have been. And he will therefore be firmly secured like a tent peg, verse 23. Honoured in his family. But then there's a final twist, because this people are so corrupt. It was the custom then, and to some extent, of course, still is uh, is in the Near East. Uh, All the glory, verse 24, of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all his lesser vessels, from the bowls to the jars. If you get into a high position, you're expected to look after your own. They come to you saying, now that you've got to be prime minister, can I please be keeper of the kitchen, or whatever. His family are going to hang on him, and the load is going to become unbearable. And so, in that day, verse 25, the peg driven into the firm place will give way, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. Even the best of men will struggle with the worst that their own will do to them. What time is it? When are we? Uh, At the beginning, uh, well, in June, we're going to start a series on uh, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And much of it is is caught up in the question of uh, how much of God, God's life, is now and how much is far off in the future. We can live like it's all not yet off in the future, none of it for now. But we know of churches where it's all hunky-dory now, where, it's, where praise flows and there's a party. But is that right? Is it all getting better and better? Or is it all, I don't believe it, going to hell in a handcart? The point is, we cannot say. What looks like one thing from one perspective can flip over and suddenly be another. I'm part of the generation that watched um, uh, the, the game show. What was it called? The one with Stuart Hall and Eddie Waring. I want to say Je Sans Frontières, but... It's a knockout. Thank you. And I, I remember those programmes, and some of you will remember those as well. And then this week, Stuart Hall's fall from everything that his public profile 
would have been expected to show. One thing can flip over to another in a moment. And it means at least as the people of God, because that's where it translates, of course, there may be warnings to think about politically from going from one nation to our own nation or to any other nation. But fundamentally, this is the people of God, so it meshes over to the church rather than to our own country. And as the people of God, we must not put any faith in political manoeuvring. We may have to do it, but are we doing it with faith in the political manoeuvring or in uh, God and his protection and reliance upon him. Let me give you an example. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly nervous of this because I really don't want the example and the illustration to take over from the principle of Isaiah chapter 22. Think about the issue of civil partnership and same-sex marriage. I don't want to make it a big point about those issues as such. I don't want to get distracted on that in this uh, talk But one of the things that's interesting is what has happened politically. Uh, The churches were, uh, when things were, well, there's there's regular marriage and civil marriage, um, and then civil partnerships, the churches were initially really quite nervous about civil partnerships. But then when same-sex marriage came along, the churches suddenly realized that civil partnerships might be better than they'd originally given credit for. They didn't want to go all the way towards gay marriage, so they said, well, civil partnerships look a lot better. We'll, we'll, we'll recommend that. And many churches uh, at the moment in our country and, and actually across Europe where the debate is going on are saying civil partnership is what we'll recommend. We can live with civil partnership, only please, let's not have same-sex marriage. Civil partnership, the nature of civil partnership has not changed. But the civil partnership that looked so alarming three or four years ago is now being approved simply because of the entry into the discussion of same-sex marriage. The churches had to take some kind of political stand. But in many cases, the principles of what they were trying to achieve went out the window because what they were trying to do is, oh, which of these is less like what we can live with? If a church believes that civil partnership is wrong, then presumably it is still wrong. If it's right, it was always right. As I say, it's just an illustration. But it's an illustration of how churches get caught up in the politicking. One of my favorite quotations, as we come towards the end, is from St. Augustine. He, he's very important as we look at Isaiah, because he watched the collapse of civilization as we know it. He was, a, he was the one around when the Roman Empire just imploded. And the, the whole Christian world around him thought this was a disaster, because the, the uh, Roman Empire had upheld things. It had kept things going. And Augustine was the one who, like Isaiah, said, don't put your faith in empires. Don't put your faith in politics. Of course, you've got to work and and, uh, work hard. But don't put your faith there. What kind of time was it for Augustine? The empire had fallen. 
well, that was good in one level because it was the Roman Empire. It was uh, substantially pagan in lots of it. On the other hand, chaos reigned. And it's the same questions for us. Do we interfere? Do we put boots on the ground in Iraq or in Syria? What if Assad is deposed? Well, that's good. Assad is gone. But it might be bad because chaos will reign. Augustine needed to know answers to that kind of question. And he said this, and it hangs over all these chapters as we want to know what kind of time it is in our world. Bad times. Hard times. This is what people keep saying. But let us live well, and the times shall be good. We are the times, such as we are. Such are the times. When we don't know what kind of times we live in, might be true personally, might be true at the level of a nation, at the level of a church, it might be true in the organization that you work for or learn in, God's answer is always the same, and it's the one that's lying behind the the biographies of Shebna and Eliakim, and the oracles that are at the first part of the chapter. By all means, prepare and work. Respond to the times as seems best to you. There's no choice in that, because not to respond is only to respond differently. But do so as those who live well, as those who live to please me. Do so as those who want to be Eliakim, a father in Jerusalem. Eliakim the Christ-like, rather than in Shebna the corrupt. Live like the one, not the other, and you shall then live well. The times shall be well, because you are the times. Let's pray. Lord, there will have been times this week when something we really didn't want to happen, happened. And over the course of months and years, we know the moments when we've looked at all that record and thought, oh, well, what's the point? What's the point of following Jesus? Or maybe we're the kind of character where actually things have gone very well for months, but we're always waiting for something to trip us up and go the other way. And as we read these stories, give us confidence, we pray, that you are behind all the times and that your constant call to us is to live well, to live like Eliakim, not like Shebna. Give us the strength to live whatever our circumstances as those who know ourselves called by God, clothed in Christ and equipped with his spirit so that whatever the circumstances may be, we may live well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.